The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How goes it, pals? This might be the Paul Leslie Hour, but it's still Frank's world. We all just live in it. We are at episode twenty-eight. On this episode, we're celebrating one hundred two years of singer, actor, and recording artist Frank Sinatra, and we're joined by a very special guest. He's a manager, producer. His background includes experiences of, as a vocalist, guitarist, bassist. It's our pleasure to welcome our guest, Tony Opetisano, or Tony O to many. Thank you, Paul. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you, my friend. I'm flattered and honored that you think to call me. My pleasure. Well, most stories are best from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about. The part of the country you're from, and what life was like growing up. Born and raised in in Brooklyn, in uh, predominantly an Italian neighborhood. I mean, there were obviously other ethnicities besides, but the majority was Italian. Went to Catholic school in Brooklyn with a, a buddy of mine who's still a buddy of mine, Antonino Ayadanza, better known as Tony Danza, and then moved to Long Island when I was about thirteen. Started playing in the industry, nightclubs and stuff like that. When I was actually underage, I literally had a uh, a phony driver's license. Back in those days, the drinking age was 18, and the only people that had photographs on their driver's licenses in New York were chauffeurs. And I was 17, and I had a driver's license that said I was 18 so that I could start working in clubs. I was actually still in high school, my last year of high school, when I started gigging all around the city. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, quite an education, let me tell you, something I would never change. Uh did that until it was around 1970. I moved to California in 1976 because the the entertainment industry, it seemed at that point, was moving to California wholesale. Uh, Johnny Carson had moved to Tonight Show. All of the major nightclubs were folding that era was coming to an end. I was thankful that I caught the tail end of it for about six or seven years and was fortunate that I was able to play quite a few of the major clubs, Barney Googles and Jimmy Weston's, and uh, I was able to play Eddie Condon's, uh, mostly jazz rooms. And my mainstay, uh, I played frequently. I was in the regular rotation at Jilly's on 52nd Street. That's pretty much the history of why I moved to California, though, is because the industry was lock, stock, and barrel moving west. And even film, believe it or not, all the corporate offices were still back in New York, but everything else seemed to be moving out here. And I figured, well, uh, as I've said uh, before, I, I told my parents, listen, I'd, I would like to be the typical Italian-American son and stick around like everyone else does, but if I do, the closest I'm going to come to, to show business is playing a few bar mitzvahs and a couple of weddings on the weekend. That's not exactly my idea. <laughs> so I uh, picked up with a couple of buddies of mine. Without sounding like I'm patting myself on the back, all three of us were pretty strong individually in what we did. Channel player by the name of Frank Goldstein and a drummer by the name of Dominic Famularo, who has gone on to become one of the world's premier, most sought-after drummers and uh drum experts, and we figured, well, you know, what better way to make the move than hedge our bets and put together 
three individually strong entities and make it one. And so we loaded up a, a Datsun 240Z in a van and just headed west without without a formal plan. We didn't have any gigs planned. We didn't know where we were going to live. We just knew that we were headed for California to do what it was that we loved doing. That's uh, what caused me to make the move west and, and leave New York behind. And, you know, wanted to play, we wanted to play Vegas and we wanted to play Tahoe and, uh, and experience all of that stuff. This is two years before there was uh, any gambling in Atlantic City, let alone, you know, what's happened in the interim all over the, all over the country, you know, with all the Indian properties all over the country. Literally almost in every state there are Indian casinos now. It was a different world then. And if you could describe the kind of music that you most identified with from your formative years, what kind of music was uh, that? You know, it's, re- it's, really, it's really a funny thing that you should ask that. I, my parents listened to all kinds of music at the house. We listened to everything from, from opera to classical to, to jazz to the Great American Songbook. Um, a little bit of rock and roll, but rock and roll wasn't that predominant yet. And a little bit of country. My father, surprisingly enough, even though he was born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, had, a, had a, a secret affinity for certain kinds of country music as well, Chet Atkins and people like that. My favorite, though, I I always leaned toward jazz and the Great American Songbook. It just seemed like if you had any any sense of music if 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 people would have to take music theory just one semester of music theory it would change how they perceive uh, you know what they're listening to um it just seemed like a gourmet meal for a musician's mind to be to be listening to and performing that stuff as opposed to tunes that uh that were very, very simple in their construction, comparatively speaking. It's funny, a buddy of mine, Frank Carrillo, who went on to become a pretty successful rock and roll performer, he worked with George Harrison, Worked with. he had his own band, and he introduced me to Peter Frampton way back, this had to be 1973 or 4. Right around the time that album came out, Frampton Comes Alive, and... Frank was telling him about my proficiency as a jazz guitarist. And I was working at Jilly's at this particular time. And he said, listen, Peter's going to be staying at my house on New Hyde Park on Long Island. He said, you know, when you're done with your gig, why don't you come by? I'd love for you guys to meet us. You know, I'm not going to be at the house. I won't be able to be at the house till three o'clock in the morning. He says, it doesn't matter. We hang out till all kinds of hours. So I walked in. He was, he couldn't have been more gracious. And we started to talk about music and he's the one that made the observation. He said, he said, you know, comparing what you do to what I do, he said, it's very funny. He said, my tunes are about four chords per tune. The stuff you do is four chords per bar. Hmm. And he, and he, uh, very gracious and a really, really nice man. But that's pretty much why I was leaning toward the other stuff. It just uh, it fell on my ear uh, as something that I could really wrap my head around. It was it was not too simple that bored me to tears. And depending on how sophisticated your ear was, 
you know, you could put different harmonies to the same melody line and all of a sudden, as Frank used to say, uh, it's wearing a new dress. Speaking of the Great American Songbook, one of the things that's incredible about it is its incredible lasting power. Mm-hmm. I wonder, mm-hmm. without speaking for Frank Sinatra, what do you think, for example, that Mr. Sinatra would think about this recent album by Bob Dylan, where Bob Dylan did all Frank Sinatra songs? You know, it's it's funny. Frank, I had a conversation with him one day. We were listening to uh, a show on PBS, and there's a, an extremely talented young musician that I had the good fortune of being instrumental in having Frank put on the bill with him, his last tour in Europe, that being John Pizzarelli. Obviously, Frank and I both knew and know Bucky, his dad. And Frank uh, uh, was talking about, you know, what a great talent he was. And his brother, Martin Pizzarelli, a tremendous bass player. And this is after we had returned from Europe. And the the interviewer said to, to Pizzarelli, how come you've never recorded any of Sinatra's tunes? And John said, well, you know, once Frank puts his fingerprint on something, he said it's, it's, it's really hard to do it any different than, than he does. And Frank looked at me and he said, you know, you call John and you tell John, I said he's a talented guy and he should go into the studio. I don't own any tune. And he's talented enough to put his own spin on it and make it his own. And so I would expect that that's pretty much what Frank would say about Bob Dylan going into the studio and recording an album of Sinatra-type stuff. Same thing like with Rod Stewart. You know, is it is it their, is it their bailiwick? It's never really been their bailiwick. You know, they did it pretty well. Uh, and they did it their own... It's a tired phrase, but they did it their own way. Yeah. You know, Frank said, if you can't go into a studio and do something and put a new face on it, then leave it alone. Find something else to do. I mean, he appreciated when people used to pay him homage that way. But I had the pleasure and the privilege of uh, playing an album that Keely Smith did. She went into Studio Capital Records, Studio A, and recorded an entire album, a tribute to Frank. And... This was somewhere around, I think it was late 1996, 97. It was just, it was just, she was recording it before Frank passed. And she sent me a test pressing of it, and I played it for Frank, and he loved it. He loved it not only because he appreciated her as a vocalist and a singer and her taste in, in arrangements and everything else, but she did a lot of the tunes in a different fashion. And, you know, you can do, Frank always used to say that any, any song that's written well can lend itself to a number of different treatments. You could do it in three. You can do it as a bossa nova. You can swing it. So he was really, really over the moon about the album. To give you a little bit of insight into Keely Smith, what a tasty, tasty woman she is. 
while they were finishing up the album and getting ready to release it, Frank unfortunately left us and Keely put the album on the shelf for almost a year because she didn't want think people would, people to think that she was trying to capitalize on Frank having passed away to sell records. Hmm. Well, that's reverent. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were, you know, they were good friends for a very long time. You know, they even recorded a couple of things together. I was watching this other interview that you did with your friend, uh, the the great drummer. Yeah, Dominic. Dominic Samuelaro. Huh? Yeah, great interview. But there was something that oh, really caught you. my attention. Absolutely. Uh, you talked about recording with Nelson Riddle yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I'm yeah. very curious. Do you have those recordings still? You know, it's really, it's really funny, Paul. This was in 1979, the end of 78, going into 79. I had met Nelson because of my friendship with Bill Miller and Bill Miller, Frank's longtime accompanist and conductor. And I was trying to get a record deal. And I figured, well, what better way to do that than to at least make part of an album? And I went in and I recorded with a full orchestra, strings, the whole, the whole nine. Al Viola was on guitar. I, I had the, the best of the best. It was uh, a labor of love. And I did, let me see, day in, day out. I did The More I See You is a ballad. The Fools Rush In. You're Driving Me Crazy. It was something that I felt compelled to do in order to take a shot at, at you know, moving up in the industry. I was under contract at Harrah's in Lake Tahoe. I had a three-year contract, four months out of the year, one month pretty much each season. And same thing at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, three-year deal with four months each year. And I figured, you know, for me to make a move and maybe move into the big room and open for someone like a Don Rickles or Joan Rivers or someone like that, you know, I got to start making some noise. And that's why I did it. Unfortunately, at that point in time, the music industry had taken a major shift that was about to take a major shift and was, was leaning more toward disco. And from disco, it went to grunge and then heavy metal. And so over about a four-year period, there was a major shift in what the country was listening to. And a lot of even the established artists were having a bit of difficulty during that period. But forget about someone new trying to break down the door. It wasn't going to happen. So uh, it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And I have, I thankfully saved a couple, of, I, a couple of test pressings, and I have since transferred that into CD just so that I could have it and listen to it every once in a while. It's not finally mixed. And there are no there are no effects or anything like that. It's pretty much raw. Yeah, I do have I do have those recordings. I want to kind of jump to a place that played a very big part in your story, and of of course I'm talking about Jilly's. If mm-hmm. you could paint a picture for us, what was the place like, and what about the guy? Who was Jilly? Jilly, Jilly Rizzo was. Pretty much, I like to say, he's pretty much like the brother Frank never had. He was a man about town, and as I 
wrote, uh, I was honored to have been asked by Willie Rizzo, Jilly's son, who had a book written about his dad a few years back, and he asked me to write the foreword. And Jilly grew up in the village in New York. He was born in the area of Spring and Sullivan Street. And not a very book-learned man, but he could give a postgraduate dissertation in street smarts. And he was a very uh, intuitive guy. He loved helping people, especially entertainers. He was a frustrated saxophone player. And he ran a terrific club. He had some of the best music, some of the best musicians. Peter Nero came out of Jilly's, Frankie Randall, the great to this day, one of the most sought-after jazz pianists in the world, Monty Alexander, came out of Jilly's. He was playing in Jilly's as a very young man, as I was. I started working in Jilly's when I was 20. He was extremely devoted and dedicated to Frank, as he was to most of his friends. He was the kind of guy, I'm sure you have friends like that, where knowing that he was in your corner, you almost felt like you didn't need to have any other friends in the world. That's the way Jilly was. And he enjoyed helping people who he felt were talented. And I've adopted his rationale that it's it's nice to be able to help people get where they deserve to be. And that's the reward, is watching them become a success. And that's what he did with a lot of people. And what was the place like, if you could kind of give us an idea? You know, it's funny. The, the place has not changed much. Obviously, Jilly, Jilly sold the club somewhere around 1978. And the new owners couldn't sustain it without Jilly being in attendance. Obviously, when you got your name on a, on a place, people are looking for you, especially that he was such a character. So the place actually folded as Jilly's in 1980. It is now a place called the Russian Samovar. And... The address is 256 West 52nd Street. It's right next door to what is now the Neil Simon Theater. At the time, it was the Alvin Theater. Across the street from Roseland Ballroom. And it was a, a happening spot. It was not a large place. It, the ceilings were very low. There was, a, there was an ambiance and an electricity in that in that place. You walked down three steps and there was a door and a little ante room and then another door. And then when you walked in, the bar was on the right. And they had all these pictures of Frank, a lot of, uh, not publicity shots. So a lot of them were, were stills from, from films, but, uh, funny stuff that happened on the set and things like that on the wall. And as you walked further into the room, there was an archway that, which led to where the piano bar was on the left. And there was all these two and four tops all over the room. And then at the very rear of the room, on the left side, there were these, there were two very large booths. And the booth on the left of the room was Frank's booth. Uh, and there was an eclectic group of people that populated the club. I mean, every, everything from politicians to classical performers to opera singers to mob guys it was just that kind of a play you didn't dare take out a camera in that in that place people would you know the made a dude come on and say excuse me can i see you outside please it was that kind of a room 
It was always hopping. Ironically enough, Jilly, who was Italian, uh, his real name was Ermena Gildo, was his first name. His mother started calling him Jilly. But the menu, when they had, they had food till 2 o'clock in the morning, was Chinese instead of Italian. And it was some of the best Chinese food, you know, in that part of the city. You'd have to go down to Chinatown to get something that, that equaled it. It was just a terrific, terrific spot. You never know who you were going to see in there. It was just that kind of a place. I don't know of a place like that in existence today anymore on either coast. And it was at Jilly's that you first met Frank Sinatra, correct? Yes. Yeah. I had been a friend of Jilly's at that point for a little over a year. I had worked at the club a couple times already. And uh, Jilly called me one day and he said, listen, the old man's coming in from the coast. He said, you know, don't talk it up. Don't, don't tell anybody, but he's coming in. He was at this point in time, Frank was in the middle, the, be- the beginning toward the middle of his self-imposed retirement where he wanted to take a breather from the business. He was in his mid fifties and he was coming in because Frank Jr. was appearing at the Rainbow Grill and he was coming in to see the, the, the midnight show closing night, you know, just to get a read on what his son was doing. And so Jilly said, I'd like for you two guys, I want to introduce you to him. Okay. And we didn't get to meet at the Rainbow because I had a gig that night. And I made it over to the club just in time. Frank was in the middle of his first tune when I walked in. And I saw Jilly and Sinatra sitting off to the side up against the windows in the room. And after the show, a little bit of bedlam because people realized then that Frank senior was there. And so they ducked out and Jilly just motioned, I'll see you back at the club. So it wasn't until about an hour and a half later that I was at the club and they come walking in and Jilly, they got settled in their booth and Jilly came walking over to me. I was sitting at the piano bar. Joe Patron was working guy that I had played with before. And he said, listen, uh, how'd you get go tonight? I said, oh, terrific. He said, so you got your axe, guitar in the car. I said, yeah. He says, good. He says, the old man wants to hang out. I'm going to close the club at 4 o'clock and chase everybody out. He says, I want him to hear you play. <laughs> Which, <laughs> my heart skipped a few beats at that point. But that's how we met. I came in, and it was uh, the late Lou Berryman on bass, Joe Patron on piano, and myself on guitar up at the piano bar. And Frank moved up from his booth and sat opposite, right across the piano from me. And we were uh, just doing what my club performers do. Joe Joe was calling tunes and calling a key and counting off the tempo and off you go. And we hit it off. I was fortunate that I didn't embarrass myself that night and Frank enjoyed what I did and told me so. As a matter of fact, it's ironic you should ask. I'm just thinking about that now. Today is December 4th that we're doing this recording. This Friday, December 8th, Literally 45 years ago, oh my God, Yeah. this Friday is the night that I met Frank. December 8, 1972 is when I met him. And what was your first impression when you were eyeball to eyeball with him? You know, he had a very disarming way about him. He made me feel that he was supportive to the point where 
maybe six tunes or so into what we were doing, Joe Patron said to me, hey, Tony, why, why don't you do something just by yourself, just, you know, just on guitar, like Joe Pass or, or Bucky Pizzarelli. And I was thinking, okay, what, what tune could I do? And then I, I remembered that, that Frank had a soft spot for Bossa Nova. He had recorded an album with Joe Beam not that long before this. And I started playing a tune called How Insensitive. And all of a sudden, I'm like eight bars into this, and Frank starts humming. <laughs> and then he goes from humming to singing. I almost dropped the guitar. So now I'm going from playing the lead to accompanying him. And it just, it was so, it felt so natural. And it came to a perfect conclusion as though we had rehearsed it. And he just looked across the piano at me. He had his eyes closed and he opens his eyes at the end and he looked at the piano at me and he said, it's really nice kid, really nice kid. And I said to him, wow. well, thank you, Mr. Sinatra. I said, I'm, I'm no alveolar, but I tried. And he looked at Jilly and he said, who the hell is this kid? How does he know who alveolar is? <laughs> so there was, a, there was a chemistry. That was the beginning of a, of a very close 26-year relationship, thanks to Jilly. And as I say, he, he took a liking to me. We had a lot in common you know, the whole heritage thing and the music thing, and this is before he ever heard me sing. He had an inbred respect for musicians, period. So I had a leg up already. The fact that he enjoyed what I did, it, it you know, it kind of advanced the, the relationship, I think. One of the things about Frank Sinatra's incredible discography is just how vast it is. He recorded mm -hmm. so many songs. It's just, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he really felt that that was one of the most creative places in the world to be, was in the studio, and he loved it. He really did. Now, I want you to think of a Frank Sinatra song that means a lot to you. Maybe not the most, maybe the most, but that means a lot to you. And don't tell us what mm -hmm. it is. Okay. Do you have it? Mm-hmm. I was hoping for the listeners, this is really putting you on the spot, but you could sing a line from that song. Oh, okay. Each place I go Only the lonely go Some little small cafe How's that? Great. Wonderful. Now that, now that everyone changed the channel. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did not. Now every, we have everyone's attention now. Now tell us, why did you pick that song? It, uh, believe it or not, it's, it's reminiscent of a part of Frank that I got to know. He was uh, one of the most unique individuals I'm sure I will ever meet in my entire life if I live to be 600 years old. And there was a part of Frank that he could be alone in a room of 50,000 people and feel alone. It got better as he got older, but there was a, there was a, a to an extent, it's, the sadness is the wrong word. There was a built-in melancholy 
in Frank's makeup. He really didn't like to be alone. And that's part of the reason I think I'm being an armchair psychologist here, but you know, growing up in a small family, it was just his mom and dad and himself. He had no siblings and the relatives were not that close by. And his mother, God bless her, was a very busy lady. His father had the nightclub, in addition to being a fireman. And he was, uh, he found himself alone quite a bit. And I think in later years, when he was in control of his life, that's probably part of the reason why, as much as he could possibly do it, every night was an event. Dinner was 12, 14, 16 people on the road. It was like New Year's Eve every night. And he and I would stay up until the sun came up a lot of times. The night was not something that he enjoyed spending alone. So there was a there was a built-in melancholy in Frank's makeup that he figured out his own way of of uh, of getting over it, as he used to say. I'm for anything that helps you get through the night, whether it's Jack Daniels or whatever it is. <laughs> and also, I mean, he did such a masterful job uh, recording that tune. You know, and it, it comes from the album, obviously, of the same name, which Frank used to joke that the songs, that, that album should be available by prescription. And ironically enough, the, the cover art, which if memory serves, was done by a guy by the name of Volpe, if I'm not mistaken. The cover art from the album was pretty much Frank as Pagliacci, as a clown. And the cover art won a Grammy. We're joined by Tony Opetisano, the road manager for the late Frank Sinatra and one of his closest friends. So to travel with Frank Sinatra on the road, what was the day-to-day -day like? How would you describe that? Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. And it, and it didn't change. It didn't change even after he retired. I'll give you a, a scenario. We were at his house on Broad Beach Road in Malibu, the northern end of Malibu, just past Zuma Beach. And he and I were up. Everyone else had gone to bed as usual. This was, we weren't working. And he said to me, you know, something is really bugging me in the, my top gum. And I said, okay. I said, well, why don't you, uh, let me take you to the dentist tomorrow. So he says, yeah, good idea. He says, you, you arrange it all. I said, well, I'm going to ask you a dumb question. I said, do you want to go see Dr. Rifkin in Beverly Hills or do you want to go down to see Dr. Lake down in Palm Springs, who was his doctor, his dentist forever? And he just looked at me. I said, okay, I hear you. So the next day when he got up, it was about three in the afternoon, he had his quote-unquote breakfast. I drove us to the nearest sheriff's station where there was a helicopter waiting the helicopter took us over the hill into the valley to the Van Nuys Airport, where we then got on a jet and flew down to Palm Springs, where I had a limousine waiting to take us to the dentist's office. And an hour later, we did that trip in reverse. So I don't know, any, I don't know anybody else that, that lived like that. <laughs> no. 
was about a $15,000 dental visit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What do you think we can learn from Frank Sinatra? Uh, something that he used to say. He used to say, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. And he used to joke. He used to joke. He said, you know, within your means, within your means, he said, you should try to live each day as though it were your last. He says, and one day you'll be right. Always a prankster. Always a prankster. But he also had another another saying that that he lived his life by. He was an extremely generous man. And he used to say to me, you know, the, the benefit of having money or an abundance of money is that you can make your life and the life of people you care about happier and simpler, whether you know these folks or not. Because we would go into town, he'd pick up a newspaper and he'd read about some family down on their luck. Next thing you know, what I'd be in a limousine with a, with an envelope with ten grand in cash, knocking on someone's door. Are you so and so? Yes, I am. Here, this is for you. And they'd open the door, and I mean, they'd open the envelope and look in and almost fall down. So, who's this from? And the answer was always a friend. Things will get better. So he used to say, you know, having money should just make your life and the life of people you care about happier and easier, and you'll always make more. He said, you know, he said, you'll find out the way I found out. He said, I've never seen a Brinks truck at a cemetery. <laughs> yeah. And that's truly the way he led his life. It is the way he led his life. He helped, like I say, total strangers and um, felt uncomfortable with people making a big deal out of it by way of expressing their gratitude. He would just wave it off. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, what are we having for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> what would you say Frank Sinatra taught you about music? Uh, you know, we had similar taste in music. He and I would discuss the art of singing just to the point where hours would go by, talk about breathing and phrasing and diction. He taught me, as far as especially being a vocalist, that you would approach a tune as though it were a short story or a play, that the lyric was a script. And that's part of how his criteria for choosing a song was based on what, what you were communicating to the audience. If it didn't communicate enough emotion or something like that, he would pass. And he also would say about completing a thought in one breath as best you can so as not to, to, to break it up. You've, you've heard me say that he would approach a song and he would wait Specifically, if there were a long phrase that were one that was one thought, he would do his best to sing that phrase in one breath. He used to say, "You never, you never know what you're going to say until a second before it comes out of your mouth. Yet you don't run out of air until you've completed your thought." And so then, why, if you know ahead of time what you are going to say, would you need to take a breath before you've completed that thought? And that's that was his approach. And that's one of, probably one of the biggest tips that I picked up from him. 
Was there anything that, as a result of your time with Frank Sinatra, that it changed in terms of it changed the way that you looked at life? Yeah, you know, he, we've all heard the stories about him being short-tempered and all of that kind of that kind of stuff. You know, he was a, he was indeed a perfectionist. He expected people to do the very best that they could. But on the public side, with regard to dealing with the general public and being accessible and being the guy that you could just walk over and say hello to, I would see people sometimes try to bait him into losing his temper. But at the same time, if people treated him with the same kind of respect that you would treat any individual, forget that he was Frank Sinatra. If you and I are sitting having a conversation and someone all of a sudden just walks over and sticks a piece of paper in between the two of us and say, hey, Tom, can you sign this? I mean, I would say to that person the same kind of thing Frank would say. Excuse me, can't you see I'm in the middle of a conversation with my friend? But at the same time, if we were having that same conversation and a waiter or someone would come over to the table and say, that gentleman over there would like to shake your hand or whatever, invariably, Frank would, okay, well, see what it is that they're drinking or whatever, send them around and tell them I'll be over in a few minutes. And then he would go over and be very gracious, shake hands, take pictures, sign autographs. He enjoyed it. I mean, in his mind, as he said, you know, you've got to give back. These are the people that paid the freight to get me where I got. That's part of how he, it sounds a little morbid, but it's part of how he chose to be buried where he's buried, right amongst all of the civilians, for lack of another term. Because he said, you know, for a large period of my career, I was somewhat inaccessible to most of my fans. And I don't want it to be the same way once I pass. You know, he tried to treat people, everyone the same. He said, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. You know, I'm no better than anybody else. That's very humbling for a guy of his stature. Absolutely. In addition to your association and friendship with Frank Sinatra, you're also very associated and a friend of one of Frank's friends the late Don Rickles. I was hoping you could speak a little bit about their relationship. They had a terrific relationship. Frank became aware of Don. Don was working in a nightclub in Florida called Murray Franklin's, a little bust-out joint. And Jilly is really the, was really the facilitator of that. And Jilly brought Frank in to see Don, who was, you know, he, he was doing something that the type of humor he did was carving the mouth, obviously. And the famous line is that uh, Don saw Frank walk in with Jilly and a couple other guys. And he said, oh, my God, look who's here. It's Frank Sinatra. And he said to Frank, Frank, be yourself. Stand up and hit somebody. And <laughs> all the guys around Frank, including Frank, laughed. And that was it. They were off to the races. It, it was a a friendship that lasted from the mid-50s, mid to late-50s, you know, a good 40-year relationship until Frank passed in 98. Don could get away with saying and doing things to Frank that no one else could say or do, and Frank just would find it even more hysterical. And uh, my relationship with Don, I met Don, we were both working at Harris in Lake Tahoe at the same time. 
and he was he was working with Sister Sledge in the South Shore room, and I was working in the State Line Cabaret, which was a mini showroom. And on my night off, I went in to see his show, and he was asked by the entertainment director to introduce me, and so. I went backstage after, and at that point, we started talking, and when he found out that at that point, I had been friends with Frank for about eight years, we were instant pals. It was a relationship that lasted. I represented Don, ultimately becoming his personal manager, and we shared a 24-year relationship in that regard. What was Don Rickles like when you really got to know him? Don was, he looked at the world through a prism, all his own. He saw things in a funny way. My relationship with Don was unique. Don was a uh, a unique individual who saw the world through a, a prism that was all his own. He he saw things funny. He said things in a funny way, and but he was a very warm, loving, down to earth, caring, giving guy, and he shared that with. With Frank, that's something else that they had in common. They had the same family values. They had the same spin on the world. And my relationship with Don was close. I might say that wasn't quite as close as it was with Frank as far as the amount of time that we spent together. With with Frank, I had my own room in each one of his homes where I, where I left clothes. That's not to say that Don and I weren't really very, very close, but just with Frank, there was that extra, just that extra level. But I'll tell you a quick story. I'll try to abbreviate it. I had suffered about a Bell's palsy shortly after Jilly passed away from stress and fatigue. And, you know, I was the one who had to tell Frank about Jilly's demise. And at any rate, I knew the symptoms. So a good, 10, 12 years later, I'm on the road. We were flying to Atlantic City. I had Rickles was working with Joan Rivers at the convention center. And I'm feeling this twitching in my face. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, don't tell me, not again. I was on the other side. I didn't say anything to Don. We got settled in the, in the hotel. And the next day I got up and I went to the rehearsal because I produced all of his shows as well. Well, by the end of rehearsal, my girl's palsy was in full bloom. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but... It looked like something made out of wax that got a little too close to a flame, you know, that was all droopy. And so after the rehearsal, I go over to the hotel, pick Don up, and I knock on the door of the suite. He opens the door, looks at me, doesn't say a word about my face. And how's the band? How's the room? How's the lights? How's the crowd? Blah, blah, blah. We go over, we do the show. Fantastic show. And we're in the dressing room after, which having a little drink with Joan Rivers and a couple of people. And Rickles says to me, well, I suppose it falls to me to address the elephant in the room. And everybody's going, oh, no, what's he going to do? Because they're all feeling badly. And he says, you know, Tony, you're in a room full of people who love and respect you. He says, but I got to tell you, we took a vote and the results are unanimous. And I guess I'm the one who has to tell you. Uh, we all agree that you're too short to play the lead in Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> oh. So that's the Don Rickles that I knew and loved. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he could diffuse any situation with humor. <laughs> when you reflect, what is the best thing about being Tony O? 
Uh, I have been blessed with a terrific life. Not that I'm done, in case you've heard something. But, <laughs> you know, to have been given uh, a gift, um, my musical ability, which, you know, I'm self-taught, and I, I was blessed with that, and then through various machinations, to have ended up representing and having a close personal relationship with two of the biggest people in the industry. On the last birthday that Don celebrated, in a big way, I mean, he celebrated his 90th birthday, but on his 89th birthday, Barbara, his loving wife, threw a bash for him. And it was one of those, you look around the room, every name in the industry, from Jimmy Kimmel to John Mayer to, you know, all of the, Brad Gray to uh, Burt Bacharach, Sergio Mendes, Sidney Poitier, the room was just completely Steve Lawrence, uh, obviously Bob Newhart, whole slew of people. And Don said to me, you know, he said, I'd like a birthday present that only you can give me. And I said, okay. He said, you know, my son-in-law has a sextet, jazz sextet. They're going to be playing at this thing. I want you to be the only vocalist that night. And I was very flattered and went off very well. But in the middle of my set, I said that as a, as a, a kid growing up in Brooklyn, having my eye on the entertainment industry, knowing that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I could never have envisioned where I ended up. I said, you know, in the, in the early 50s, no one ever thought of the concept of the Twin Towers. But yet, in my mind, by the time I was 12 or so, I already had my own vision of the Twin Towers, but the Twin Towers in entertainment and one in music and one in comedy. Comedy, obviously, Don Rickles, and music, Frank Sinatra. So I've led a pretty charmed life, and I've been blessed to represent two American originals, the, the likes of which we will never see again. That's really something. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, here we are. We're celebrating 102 years of the great Frank Sinatra, so I'm just going to more or less give you the microphone, give you the stage. For anyone listening out there, young, old, wherever they might be, what would you say to all the folks out there? Live life to the fullest. Enjoy yourself. Make sure that the people you care about know how you feel because there's no guarantee that there will be a tomorrow. And just enjoy life. Enjoy life and, and, and love and laugh. That's the best I can say. Tony, thanks so much for spending time with us. Well, the pleasure's been mine. I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative, as I said, that you, uh, that you thought to call me on such a, an auspicious occasion as Frank's 102nd birthday. It was an honor to speak with you. Thank you, Paul. Be well. Talk with you soon. Okay, Tony. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Bye. Well, folks, that was the Tony O interview. I want to thank you for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. And if you have a moment, it would mean something if you listen to one of Frank Sinatra's songs.
And if you're so inclined, whatever you're drinking, whether it's coffee, Jack Daniels, or even water, raise your glass for Frank Sinatra. Until next time, folks. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.